Today on Your Wellness, we will be talking about understanding suicide. We will hear some very personal stories of how mental illness can result in thoughts of suicide, how suicide affects the family, and learn how to encourage those who are suffering in silence. All that and more is coming up in Your Wellness. And welcome back to the show. I'd like to introduce my first guest, Amanda Duchesne. Thanks for coming to the show, Amanda. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here to share your story with us so we can help others understand and support others who are struggling with mental illness. So let's start with your childhood and how you, how you learned to manage your mental illness. So ever since I can remember, um, I've always been a very sad child. Uh, and when I ask about it, my mom told me that even as a baby, I cried all the time, um, like excessively more than most babies do. Uh, I was very sensitive. Uh, things were always seemed bigger than what they were. Mm -hmm. uh, even as a young child at four or five years old, uh, I would cry excessively for no reason. I would get upset and throw temper tantrums, I guess. Um, but to me, it was, it was my way of expressing myself. Uh, mm -hmm. I was feeling a lot of pain inside, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand it. Um, I was always told that it was just, oh, you're just being too sensitive, you're overreacting. But really, it was how I was feeling, and I, did, I, had, no other, I had no words. I had no words to explain how I was feeling. When I got to school, uh, I realized, well, I felt... I felt that I was different. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that the other kids didn't react the way I did to simple things like having your name called in class. That was the end of the world to me. That was like, oh my God, don't call my name. Don't, don't put your finger at me. Um, but I love school. It wasn't that I didn't like school. It's just the anxiety, the pressures, I guess, the social pressures. I always had a really hard time with that. When I was nine, I actually hit puberty, and that's when everything changed. Um, it went from being excessively sad to sometimes being angry to not wanting to be myself, not knowing who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Um, but I was nine. I was in grade three, and I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt very outside, outcasted. I felt different. I felt like the black sheep. That's kind of what I always go back to, is I always felt like the black sheep. Um, and I know that doesn't sound very... Um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but at nine is when I first felt that feeling of, do I really belong here? Mm -hmm. What is my purpose here? Why am I doing this every day? And that's a kind of a scary thought for a nine-year-old to have. Mm -hmm. You know, I should be, you know, out in the playground having fun, playing with my friends, but I didn't really have friends. And it's not because I wasn't a social person. I just didn't have those skills um, because of the way that I reacted to situations. Nobody wants to be friends with the person that cries all the time for everything, especially when it's just her name being called out. Right. Like my stepdad sometimes would say my name and he wasn't mean or angry or anything, but it was just hearing my name. It was like, oh my God, what trouble did I get myself into this time? But I wasn't really in trouble. I was a good kid. I was very quiet. I kept to myself. I followed the rules. I just was very sad. And when did you receive your first diagnosis? 
I believe I was 12 and it was a generalized anxiety diagnosis. Uh, so I got some counseling for that. We did some group counseling. We did some one-on-one -on -one counseling. We did some family counseling, but it didn't really avail to nothing. Uh, my symptoms were still excessively disproportioned mm -hmm. and it just progressively got worse from there. Uh, the diagnosis has changed as I got a little older. Um, did the being diagnosed, did it help you or did it hinder you? Did it maybe put a label on you? Did it change the way you were, you were functioning? I found that it did put a label in the school setting. The teachers didn't support as much as they did before now that there was you know, a diagnosis, which seems a little odd, like you think it'd be the other way around. But I did find that with the community services, having the diagnosis, I qualified for certain, like the counseling I discussed earlier, the group counseling, the one-on-one -on -one counseling, that was available to me due to my diagnosis. Okay. So that part helped. Yes. As a, when I got older, I got uh, a different diagnosis, and that diagnosis has a lot more stigma than generalized anxiety. Um, so that caused a little bit of hindrance. There was a lot of judgment from people of the medical society, my family, my friends. Uh, not a lot of people understand it, and it caused, it caused an alienation having that particular diagnosis. Did, did you see yourself struggling more after the diagnosis and when did you start to have suicidal thoughts? Um, the first suicidal thought I ever had, I was nine, so that was before that diagnosis, but it did get a lot worse when I was in my teens, 14, 15 years old. It didn't help that I did experience a couple traumas during that time frame um, that exasperated the symptoms that I had. Mm -hmm. And as you got older, were those thoughts getting worse? Were they getting stronger? Were you able they were to getting, overcome? The thoughts were getting worse, and they were getting stronger. They were getting harder to say, no, I don't want to think like that. And like the, Stopping the thought was a lot more difficult mm -hmm. the older I got. Once I had the diagnosis and I got the counseling and some therapy that I needed, it did help. Um, it did alleviate some of the thoughts and some of the impulsivity of the thoughts, the intensity, I guess, that would cause the impulsivity. Mm -hmm. did, did people around you struggle with your, your illness or not understand it or did they lose, were they frustrated? What was going on in your family and friends? I found that a lot of people in my close surroundings they did end up feeling frustrated um, due to the fact that I was so emotional. I was, I cried so much. You know, there was no talking to me. It was, when I was upset, it was, the, I was a brick wall. Like, it, I was throwing terror tantrums, I was screaming, you couldn't connect with me. And it's, I wanted them to hear me out. Um, and they tried, my family did try very hard. But not knowing what was going on, like why I was acting like that was very hard for them. They thought I was just, you know, doing it for attention. And that was very hurtful when they would say things like that because I couldn't control it. It was, it was stronger than me. So it was hard for my family for sure, especially when I got the, the diagnosis as an adult. Um, due to the stigma of that diagnosis, a lot of um, the family history is blamed for that diagnosis. So with that stigma, my family was very like, well, we, tr we treated you well, we took care of you, why, why do you have this? And I tried explaining to them, it has nothing to do with the way I was raised, I just 
happen to be predisposed to these kinds of emotions and reactions. Um, now they understand a lot more, but it's still really hard. Uh, when I have been hospitalized for mental health, I choose not to tell my family uh, because it's easier that way. It's harder for them. It's hard for them to see me like that. Um, it hurts them and it hurts me to know that I'm hurting them, but I'm not doing it intentionally. So I prefer to kind of keep those times to myself. Um, I have told my mom when I was admitted to one time, uh, I was there for a long time. So I, I let her know because I, I, she's my mom, she loves me very much. And I just wanted her to know that I was okay. I was getting better. Um, and that too was hard for my family and friends to understand why I would admit myself in the hospital. Um, I do that to keep myself safe. Sometimes it gets too hard and that is, that's what I've learned to do. I have learned to ask for help and if it takes being admitted in the hospital, it takes being admitted in the hospital, but it keeps me alive. Mm -hmm. And that I'm grateful for because even though I have those thoughts and I have those feelings, I don't want to die. I don't, I want to live. Um, but these emotions, these feelings are so strong. They, they're stronger than me sometimes. So sometimes that outside help, um, like the hospital, crisis services and stuff like that really does help. So I have learned to reach out for help, to ask questions, to get feedback from people. Um, growing up, I was always afraid of my feelings. I, like I, I explained earlier, I felt different um, and I didn't want to be ostracized, so I didn't want to talk about what I was feeling, but I've learned that it's better to talk about it and to get the help that I need than to isolate and wait for what's going to happen next. Well, Amanda, I'm so glad that you have mm -hmm. found out how to uh, stay healthy and how to reach out and how to talk. And sharing your story with us today, I think, is really going to help others that might be struggling. So thank you for sharing us your story. Thank you for having me today. And after the break, we will meet Terry Legault, who lost her son to suicide and the impact it has had on her and her family. Next on Your Wellness. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'd like to introduce my next guest, Terry Legault. Thank you for coming to the show, Terry. Thank you for having me. And we'd like to honor your son's life by sharing your story and perhaps helping others that might be struggling. Can you tell us a little bit about your son and uh, his life? Um, yeah, Adam was uh, a wonderful child. However, when I heard Amanda speak earlier, um, you know, my son also, I thought, I would like to use the word empathic. He was that okay. type of child where I it was like you're acting out how I'm feeling how is that but I didn't have the right information at that time it was just something and then as he became a teenager um, you know uh, he started to suffer a little bit here and there with depression and doctors you know were helpful but would say it's probably hormones or or whatever and he didn't really um, share a lot about what was going on inside mm -hmm. um, and so, long story short, he had his first uh, psychosis around 19 years old, but he hadn't slept for three days, and that can bring it on. Adam had a disadvantage in a sense where he was six foot seven and wow. over 300 pounds. Um, and so, he, there's, I think, uh, uh, a tendency to over medicate 
when someone is in a psychosis and that size and not knowing the person and and unfortunately uh, it started a cycle of of him not doing well on medications getting off medications and not doing it properly which was what I learned later creating more psychosis and it became a cycle of on and off medications and no real actual feeling of help of what's causing it unfortunately now looking back is there and without doing that would have could have should have mm -hmm. aspects of it was there something that you know now that perhaps you could have done differently absolutely and I have no trouble sharing that in the first five years I the biggest lesson I learned in my life is I cannot give to another what I don't have myself mm -hmm. as a parent I had no self-love no self-esteem I had the social masks I looked like the perfect mother perfect but inside I suffered with my own fears and anxiety and when my son was faced with this challenge I uh, let fear take over and listened to all external advice whereas now um, I would do my own homework my own research and look for alternative measures and look more at a cause rather than just putting band-aids on did you ever at that time think your son would become so ill that he would eventually take his life never um, Adam was uh, very intelligent mm -hmm. and he was the kid who read books like rich dad poor dad at 16 years old decided he was going to be an entrepreneur did great in schools his teachers loved him and and often had you know high expectations for him um, and but I know I would have never I know that he did suffer often with suicidal thoughts but they are also a symptom from many of the medications mm -hmm. and you know that's like playing Russian roulette with your life honestly and um, but he had this awareness that those thoughts like Amanda he didn't want to die he did everything he could to fight it and sometimes that meant sleeping all day long so he didn't have to deal with it okay there was a part of him that did not want to die are there any lifestyle habits that someone who's struggling can help to prevent the suicidal thoughts is there anything that we can offer our our viewers well as a mom I'm gonna say that um, the first five years of my son's illness forced me to uh, take better care of me mm -hmm. and then I discovered through those tools that those tools could also help my son okay. and Adam was more than a willing participant mm -hmm. and we had the luxury of I had the gift of having him move in with me in the last year of his life and taught him breathing exercises that helped him through anxiety um, you know we do meditations together we did self-work um, he was doing a lot of inner work that was really helping him progress but in the end um, the system um, was such that they were trying to discourage people some that have been in the system for a long time on and off these pills okay. and like Amanda my son always knew when it's time to get help he would go to the hospital 
he would sit there in psychosis and wait and emerge for eight hours whatever to get admitted they would put him on medication it would help because it takes a long time for this medication to get into your system okay. he would reach a stage where he was like wow there's my son back and he would get you know he was out of the psychosis he was feeling good again or on his way to it however once he was out of the hospital and the medication continued it would be he would describe it like it would he'd start to flatline it he'd say that there's no more enjoyment it, there's a a side effect from these medications that we really need to consider and educate ourselves about mm -hmm. I was willing to take the medication so that I could better understand what my son was going through and my son refused there's no way he would let me do that he said mom I will not let you destroy your brain like that mm -hmm. and and I know that sometimes we need medication mm -hmm. but I do think we really need to look at alternative uh, other methods and make sure we do our homework um, there are other ways I do believe that we can help each other and family suicide and mental illness is a family right. like, and my son always said if I had a broken leg people could see the right. pain that I'm in um, but they can't see the pain in my heart and in my mind and so listen to our children and let's not worry what people think of us I think we're we feel disconnected inside a lot of us and we're lacking things like self-love and self-esteem and self-confidence and in deep down we all want the same thing we all want to be loved and accepted mm -hmm. for who we are mm -hmm. and if we feel like we don't fit into that category we destroy our own selves with our thoughts and our our lack of feeling like we belong well, I'm so glad that you were able to talk about your son and um, share with us your insights and what you've learned, because I think there's going to be other people that are going to learn from your story. So thank you so much for your story in honoring you. Adam's life. Thank you. <laughs> it's time for us to take a quick break here on Your Wellness, and when we come back, we will talk to Emily Zanini, who will help us understand suicide and what can be done to support those who are suffering with mental illness and feel that there is no hope. Next on Your Wellness. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to introduce my next guest, Emily Zanini. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. Now, you're a mental health educator. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you're so passionate about educating people on mental <laughs> illness. What's your story? Um, how much time do you have? Um, but no, it all uh, basically stemmed from my own lived experience. Um, I'm a survivor of suicide, and you know, after being diagnosed with depression and anxiety, it was really difficult to kind of navigate the health system and really understand the illness and um, not really have that self-blame and self-stigma. So uh, in recovery, I kind of worked through a lot with uh, you know, counseling and different types of support. So um, that really kind of fueled my passion for mental health and, and entering the field with CMHA. So. And what might be hindering someone from seeking help who might mm -hmm. be suffering? Yeah, um, so I did touch on the stigma piece, right? So a lot of times it feels like, oh God, what's wrong with me, right? It's a sign of weakness, maybe I'm just in a rut. And people think that it's this this character defect, right? That they should be able to kind of just snap out of it. And, and that's not the case. And uh, I think there's a lot of fear around where to go for help, um, thinking that maybe nobody understands, that nobody is able to help. Um, there are many reasons that, uh, you know, hold people back from, from accessing supports, but uh, things like this are really important in, in letting people know that it's okay to, to reach out. 
Is there anything else that you can say to help someone who might be walking by a mental health um, door for support, walking back and forth, walking back and mm -hmm. forth? Is there anything you can say today to help them open that door yeah, and uh, come on in? Yeah, there is a ton of support on the other side. And, and just to take that initial step is, is really courageous for anyone to say, hey, I'm not okay and I can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. um, but recognizing that you don't have to do it alone, I think, is, is a really important thing. Now, when someone has had suicidal thoughts, those that don't understand it might think that this is a selfish act. What would you say to someone who might be misunderstanding someone who has suicidal thoughts? Sure. Um, so uh, recognizing that it's a symptom of an illness, right? It, just like um, someone with cancer is going to go through different types of treatments for chemotherapy, right? That doesn't make them selfish because they want to get better. And, and for someone who's in a place of hopelessness or helplessness, and sometimes when uh, we're very narrow-minded in that, in that dark place, we don't really recognize that support is available and that there is hope and a lot of uh, positive things on the other side of recovery but taking that first step for people is really challenging and it, it's not uh, suicide is not selfish um, it, it's it's a choice but it's someone who is suffering you know we have to understand and and empathize with that aspect of them and not really look at it as you know it, it's their fault it's nobody's fault right right and why do you feel more people might be suffering from mental illness are we talking about it more or is there actually more people suffering yeah um, so I think in society we're doing a really good job with different uh, campaigns uh, for mental health awareness in general um, so people are feeling a little more comfortable to kind of open up and, and access what supports are available but I think too with the amount of technology and the way society is there's a lot of pressure of you know do more in less time um, we're on our devices all the time so we're not having face-to-face -face conversations with people anymore so uh, we we miss that connection piece and as humans that's a basic need right and, and Terry did say that you know we all do need to be loved and cared about and supported and that is just a basic human need so for someone living with depression who feels like they're alone and that nobody cares and is there for them that's it a really scary place so um, just reaching out having face-to-face -face conversations uh, going for coffee with people you know not supplementing uh, Facebook messages for phone calls and, and that kind of stuff because we really lose that kind of human aspect of things with technology so that's a really important point, mm -hmm. Emily, that we are losing that touch, that physical touch and emotional and Absolutely. spiritual touch with each other. Yeah. When we were chatting earlier, you mentioned something about prevention, intervention, mm -hmm. and postvention. Yes. So can you explain that? Sure. So uh, basically the prevention piece, right, when we think about the topic of suicide, it's just the education and awareness, so what to look for uh, in our loved ones, but what to look for in ourselves, in our colleagues, uh, teammates, whatever that might be. Um, but that's the prevention piece, right, knowing what to do before it gets to that point where things are too bad. So. Um, the stigma alleviation is a, is a lot of that prevention. Uh, the intervention piece is when someone's kind of actively in crisis, right? So what can I do for you? Um, are we going to the hospital that was mentioned earlier? Um, are we calling a crisis line or a warm line? Are we going to see a family doctor, right? So just making sure that we're not leaving someone alone in that intervention piece. Um, and then the postvention piece, so whether that's someone uh, who has been de-escalated, let's say from a crisis and they're no longer 
they're having active thoughts of suicide, they still need that follow-up support. Mm -hmm. They still need um, to seek different treatments and help in community. Um, but then also looking at families that are bereaved by suicide, right? There, uh, it's like a ripple effect in community. It affects an immediate family, a, a team, a community, um, and it just trickles out from there. So uh, I think for people who lose someone to suicide, there's a lot of, of questions of, you know, why didn't I see this? Or what could I have done? Or how did I not know this? Why didn't they feel comfortable enough to talk to me? Um, so making sure that we're receiving support as, as loved ones who are bereaved um, by this very, you know, devastating um, illness because and really suicide is, is the result of, of a mental illness. So Absolutely. And what can someone who has a loved one or a friend who's struggling, what's some, a strategy that someone could do to help them today if they needed someone to help? Sure, um, yeah, so just knowing what's available in your community. Um, I put the crisis number right in my contacts and my phone because you really never know when you're going to need it. Um, so just uh, making sure that we're having conversations, checking in regularly, um, not taking things personal. I think with family and friends, a lot of the symptoms of depression are withdrawing and isolating. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe not being around family and friends as much. So if you're noticing, you know, there's someone you're not seeing as often, checking in and, and being proactive and reaching out to say, hey, is there something going on and, and being supportive that way. So education is really, really important. Absolutely. That's a good one we can do is just watch out and Mm -hmm. Keep talking to our family. Yeah, absolutely. And how are you feeling today? How are you doing today? Uh, this morning was a little uh, anxious for sure, um, just knowing that I was coming on the show and, and talking about this too because um, I do have lived experience and I know that um, the other guests uh, today as well have, the, have their own. So, I mean, we have good and bad days, um, but I think the hope and optimism piece of being here and being able to share my story in hopes that, you know, I can help at least one person out there, um, that, that really makes me feel good about um, everything that I've been through so well thank you for your honesty and having the bravery to talk about your personal story and educating so many people that need to know more about mental illness so awesome. thank you Emily thank you well that's all the time we have on your wellness this week I'd like to thank my guests Amanda Duchesne Terry Legault and Emily Zanini for sharing their personal stories to help us understand mental illness and suicide a little bit better for more information on today's show you can visit my website at newdaywellness.ca Thank you for making wellness a priority, and we'll see you next time on Your Wellness.